Before we begin our study in Revelation 16, I do want to um, give you a few comments about what happened in Sutherland, Texas with the shooting of, uh, I think it was 26 uh, individuals, 26 dead, uh, 20 wounded in a church that normally has about 50 on a Sunday morning. Uh, by the way, the average church in America is, uh, my, my understanding is probably about 80 people or less. So each Sunday morning when churches gather, a church of 50 is not an exception. It's, it's actually a pretty normal uh, situation all over America and for that matter, all over the world. Douglas Wilson has said the two statements atheists famously make are, one, there is no God, and two, I hate him. A bit ironic, isn't it? There is no God, and I sure hate him. These are some thoughts I wrote in my office. After the shooting at a church in Sutherland, Texas, some have decided to mock the idea of praying, saying such things as, enough with the prayers. Praying, obviously, isn't working, and probably multiple other statements that can be made. They come from Hollywood types and others who want to make commentary about God and about Christians. And they say these things with a smugness. Obviously, praying isn't working. Maybe we should cut out the prayers and get some legislation going on guns. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the tired old arguments. They are poor comforters, much like the wife of Job, who said to him, just curse God and die. After which Job replied, thanks, honey. Have a nice day. Poor comforters they are. After the Las Vegas shooting, when the man who killed these people from a hotel window was perpetrated, somebody high up in one of the television companies said, well, I don't have any sympathy because it was probably all a bunch of right-winger, country-loving, country-music-loving people anyway. In essence, well, maybe they deserve to die. These are the kind of comments that happen after tragedies happen in our world. And it makes us really wonder what's going on in our world. What the naysayers seem to miss is the purpose of prayer. And I would imagine that they're not alone. Because I think us as Christians often miss the purpose of prayer. Prayer is not about calling upon some bellhop in the sky to give you, your, give you your goodies whenever you want them. You pull the right lever and he delivers. That's what we're hearing in the word faith nonsense. Just pull the right lever and God will give you what you want. Use the right formula. Say the right prayer. Have enough faith. This is new age stuff. This is not Christianity. Prayer is ultimately about fellowship with God. Prayer is not getting your will on earth. It's getting God's will in heaven. God is not concerned about the things that concern us. In fact, the Apostle Paul, and I know that in light of what happened, I'm not trying to be in any way uh, uh, glib, but I will say that Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. Now, I know that that's not something that we put on our refrigerator as the verse of the day, typically. You know, it could be a gain to me today if I happen to die. But the Apostle Paul actually believed that. I was at a pastor's conference on Tuesday. There were 700 pastors that gathered uh, as KKLA put together a uh, free uh, breakfast and lunch and and pastors uh, gathering over 700 pastors gathered and their wives at Azusa Pacific University. One of the keynote speakers was Johnny Erickson Tata. When she was 18, she had a diving accident at a local beach. She was paralyzed, became a quadriplegic. And she's been in a wheelchair for 50 years. She turned 68. She announced that, to which she got applause. And then she said, I'm not sure why you're applauding me turning 68. But anyway, thank you. She's been in the wheelchair for 50 years on top of her quadriplegic situation where she has to deal with everything she goes through. She has stage three cancer as well. Johnny Erickson Tata is a fighter. Francis Chan also spoke at this event and he called Johnny Erickson Tata the most spirit-filled person he has ever met. And she does it from a wheelchair. I remember on one occasion she said that she was at a place and... uh, the, something had gone wrong with the temperature in the building and apparently it was either too hot or too cold and people were uncomfortable and there was a lot of whining and complaining going on out in the audience. And she wheeled out in her electric wheelchair and said to the group, I heard that a lot of you are uncomfortable with your seats. And she said, well, if you take a look at mine for a second, you might change your tune a little bit. She actually said at that conference that one day when she ends up in heaven, she's going to, she's had at least playing in her mind that she's now going to be standing before the Lord and she's going to look at that wheelchair, if that wheelchair could end up in heaven with her and say to God, would you please send that chair to hell? (laughs) Then she said, I don't know if I should say that to the Lord, but anyway, there you go. You see, from the perspective of a cushy life, which we all, you know, we want to enjoy, right? Uh, To the perspective of what suffering is about. I'm not sure that our critics and our opponents and the atheists and those who mock God really understand that for 2,000 years, almost two millennia, the story of the church has been a story of suffering. In fact, I will tell you what happened in Sutherland, Texas, was an affirmation of the Bible. Jesus said, don't be surprised when they hate you. Just know that they hated me first. Please know a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You see, the naysayers are watching apparently a lot of Christian television without reading their Bibles. This is not in any way when people are praying and persecution occurs, it does not in any way disqualify belief in God. It actually actually affirms the biblical record. A promise that Jesus made in John 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, according to the record of history, and this is on pretty solid ground, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. 
Peter in John 21 was promised by Jesus that he was going to be crucified. Jesus said to him, one day you're going to go and you're going to go somewhere where you don't want to go and you're going to stretch out your arms. And that verse was signifying the kind of death that Peter would die to glorify the Lord. Not only did 11 of the 12 apostles die, but you all know the story of the gospel is that God's own son, unjustly criminalized and then executed, was the most, this was the most terrible, cruel, unjust act that ever perpetrated, was ever perpetrated on the planet. Here's my point. I don't think the atheists and the naysayers understand our faith. But I will say this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And the naysayers of the Christian faith don't seem to understand that whenever they mock us, they mock God. And when Saul was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Every time you do something to one of my people, you've done it to me. When you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Now, that individual who went into the church in Sutherland, Texas, and when I was watching the news reports and started to get a little bit of a picture of who he was, I immediately thought, and I think he even shared it with my wife, there had to be somebody in there that he was after. Well, come to find out that he had a, you know, his, either his ex or his wife or whatever the situation was. There was, her mom was supposed to be in there. Grandmother, I think, was shot and killed. He had a personal vendetta. But even though he had a personal vendetta and he went into a church, this is not the first time that the church has become a target. But let me just say this to you. No matter what happens to the church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And no one, and I mean no one, will ever rob you of your inheritance. And it doesn't matter what they try to do and what they try to say. Can I encourage you, church? Don't give up. Don't lose your faith. The story of the church, this is the one that you joined. You may not have read all the fine print when you joined. I know I didn't. In fact, if I would have known the full story, I probably would have moved a little more slowly. <laughs> we got a, I was on a panel at this pastor's conference, and um, the, one of the questions that came to the four pastors on the panel was, if there was anything after years of ministry that you could do different, what would you do, do different now? And I said, well, one thing I will tell you is that once I became a Christian, I, was, I got saved in the late 80s and I felt almost an immediate call to preach. But I went on to say, but I had no idea what God was about to do to me. <laughs> and it, I think it was Tozer who said, before God can greatly use someone, he must break that person. And God's been breaking me for 30 years, stripping things away, telling me that Michael Lance has to die. But for everything he stripped away, I've gained something a thousand times better. Amen. So I'll tell you this. You may hear the voices of people who say prayer doesn't work and Christianity, and maybe we've got to do something different. I'll tell you this. Thoughts and prayers, prayers and thoughts. When people send me their thoughts, I think, well, that's nice. <laughs> But I will take all the prayer you will send up on my behalf. And I think that this nation, uh, even though there are people who seem to want to speak for all of us, 
There's people who don't really understand the heartbeat of much of this nation, that we are believers in Jesus Christ. And we believe that that is the best. He's the best way to live because what else do we truly have? So in Sutherland, Texas, in the Middle East, for two millennia, the church has gone through these difficulties. And Jesus says, look, I want you to love one another. I want you to hang in there because a day is coming when I will judge the world in righteousness. Now, God has given evidence of this by raising Jesus from the dead. We shouldn't be surprised that mockers come. Peter says in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Revelation is largely a response to an unbelieving world. And so I guess it's appropriate that tonight we're in Revelation 16, where the judgment of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting, God-defying world. We're going to see that. The table was set last week as we read uh, Revelation 15 in verse 1. Revelation 15, verse 1, we saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, 15-2, a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those who had come up victorious from the beast and from his image, these are the winners on God's side, from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they said, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God. The Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Well, the answer is many, as we're going to see in Revelation 16. There's many who apparently will not fear God. For thou, Lorna, art holy. All the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures, the four we see in Revelation 4, who never cease night and day to cry, holy, 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 right? Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. A quick uh, summary and format of what's ahead. In verses one through four, the first three bowls are poured out on the earth, the sea, the rivers, and springs of water. Verses five through seven, we're gonna see the response of the righteous. They celebrate that God is righteous in his judgment. Then we'll see the last four bowls, uh, the fourth through the seventh, <clears throat> poured out in verses 8 through 21. We'll see the response of the unbelieving world, the opposite. They don't celebrate. They're going to blaspheme God. And we're going to see how time and again the, their response is not repentance but blasphemy. I heard a loud voice, Revelation 16:1, from the temple. I would conjecture this is God's voice saying to the seven angels go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth now we are just by way of making sure we all understand where we are we in my view are not in the great tribulation we are in the day of the Lord I've continued to remind you that 
in my view, there is a very important distinction between the wrath of God and the tribulation. Tribulation is trouble. Uh, people often ask the trouble for who? Well, whoever is here that's on God's side is going to be going through trouble, great tribulation. In fact, simply put, great trouble. But when the day of the Lord commences, when the actual wrath of God occurs, the people of God are not appointed to the wrath of God. The people of God are never spared tribulation. At least, you know, for the, the most part of the biblical record, trouble comes the way of the believer. But the church is never appointed to God's wrath. And so uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, I think it's verse 10, says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So part of the reason that we celebrate the cross as a Christian is, of course, for our redemption, but also that Jesus took the wrath of God for us at the cross. He drank the cup of God's judgment, the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And there were signs of wrath around the cross, darkness of sky, earthquaking, and so forth, and Jesus' cry from the cross. So the bowls that are poured out are... Uh, also, uh, you could say part B or go hand in hand with the trumpets. They're part of the day of the Lord, and there are seven of them, the number of completion or perfection. In them, the wrath of God is finished. The first angel went and poured out his bowl, 16-2, into the earth. And it, that is the first bowl, became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, people who took the mark of the beast took it, why? Because without it, you were unable to do what? Buy or sell. So people were under pressure. They, they were saying stuff like, who is like the beast, right? And they were giving a, a claim to him and worship to him. And they did it maybe for pragmatic reasons, maybe for reasons of pressure. They took the mark of the beast, but they were warned. Remember the two witnesses in Revelation 11 and even the angels in Revelation 4, 14, flying through the mid heaven, saying, whoever takes the mark of the beast and the number of his name will drink the full cup of God's wrath unmixed, undiluted. They were warned. They heard the gospel. God gave warning over and over again. He put off the second coming of Christ. The gospel's been preached uh, to people. But here, as the judgment of God goes out in the first bowl, kind of a shallow uh, saucer is the image here of the bowl, goes out, it becomes a loathsome sore, an oozing sore. In fact, the Greek word for sore is helkas, and it's a, the same Greek word used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, for the sores that Job had in the book of Job. And Job was there with a piece of broken pottery, and he was basically scraping the pus. I'm sorry, but here it is. It's going to ruin the time of fellowship after. Uh, you'll be hungry for your cooking in a little while. It'll be all right. But anyway, and he was scraping the boils. And he was a terrible sight. In fact, it says that he had boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. He was just in a terrible condition, something like oozing, malignant type of sores. The word loathsome is uh, a Greek word, uh, kakos or kakos, and poneris uh, is the word for malignant. These are the Greek words. There are two general words for evil. So the sores 
by their very nature, are loathsome, malignant, terrible. If you've ever had just one thing on your body that, you know, maybe gets infected or you have some sort of sore. How many of you went through chicken pox? Anybody out there? I got chicken pox when I was a little older. It was terrible. In fact, I remember my girlfriend came over while I had chicken pox and I was trying to clean myself up. You can't clean yourself up when you have chicken pox. And I was putting the calamine lotion on. Did you all do that on my face and you know, all over? Woo, 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 woo. I was putting the war paint on. And then I had to sit in the bath uh, to try to soothe the sores. And then I put the calamine lotion on when I got back out. And then I went back in the bathtub. Oh, it was terrible. About three days of misery. I also had a fever during it. Can you imagine having these kinds of sores and there's no cure for it? I mean, that is a horrible thing. And one of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians was boils. Exodus 9 Verse 8 says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky. This is where LeBron James got his move before basketball games. What, you guys don't believe that? Anyway. And he did it in the sight of Pharaoh. He threw up the soot from the kiln and it became dust over the land of Egypt and it became like boil, or it became boils, an infectious disease. Some believe that it's something like leprosy back in that time. It broke out in sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. And so these, these plagues that come upon the unbelieving world, the Christ-rejecting world, have similarities to the uh, plagues of Egypt. The wrath of God comes, and it comes in this malignant sore. And it comes upon those, end of verse 2, who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. They took the mark for pragmatic reasons, to spare themselves, to maybe get food or for, out of fear. But they feared the wrong thing, right? Don't you, don't you look at the world and you see what people fear? They fear the wrong thing. Don't fear the enemy. Don't fear, fear him who can kill your body. Jesus says, and after that, he has no power over you. We need to fear God. But we, we all have our fears. And so people give in. And people, you know, who put off trusting in Jesus Christ usually say something like this. They say, you know what? When things get really bad and maybe this Antichrist shows up, then I'll get right with God. Oh, yeah. You can't serve him now, but you're going to serve him then when things are very, very difficult, right? Well, this is the lie that we tell ourselves often. The magicians back in Moses' day couldn't even stand before Moses because of the boils. That's how difficult it was. And it all, when it's said and done, boils down to your heart, pun intended. It's really what you believe and what you want to live for. You know, there's a lot of Christians in the Christian church that want to live right on the razor's edge. How much can I get away with and still be okay with God? If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking, how much can I do for God while I yet have breath in my lungs? But look, I know we struggle. I know it's hard out there sometimes. But this is written so that we might live for the right things and realize that people who are doing dastardly things aren't going to get away with it. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it, the sea, became, like, became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea. 
died. Now, for our friends who believe in a preterist view of the book of Revelation, that everything is symbolic and that all that this uh, describes is simply symbolic languages, language at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, I just tell you that some of this language, it's just hard to accept that interpretation. Because it says the sea became like the blood of a dead man and everything in the sea died. I don't know how that's symbolic. The blood of a dead man, by the way, is partially coagulated. A corpse, the blood of a corpse, and again, this is just the reality. Here's the facts. Coagulates into dark, a dark, gummy, gooey substance. Can you imagine the oceans becoming dark, gummy, and gooey? I mean, I know it would ruin a surfer's day. Right? Don't you think? Because you'd be in the tube and then it'd be like gum over you. Be, sorry, that's terrible. Thought you might need a little levity, but it didn't work, so never mind. And some people say, is that possible? Is it possible for the seas to change in substance in this way? I think so. I mean, I just read about it and... God's the one that made the water to begin with, so I guess if he wants to remake its substance, then he can. So whatever this looks like in the end, it is a, a terrible thing. And so the seas have turned, and can you imagine the people on the earth, the environmentalists, the, the people who are into climate change, trying to figure out this one? By the way, climate change is kind of a funny concept, isn't it? Let's see, climate change, didn't doesn't the climate change all the time? I don't know. I know that there's apparently scientific research that proves out that the climate changes. So I, that's pretty deep. I think we've spent a lot of money on that one. <laughs> the guy that came up with this apparently invented the internet as well. Well, we won't name any names up here because... So you say, well, that's just the sea and maybe they can work on stuff and try to come up with solutions, but at least there's still clean drinking water until you read verse four. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became like blood. Wow. Well, we still have clean drinking water. We're okay, right? Well, wrong. You're not. In Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, notice what the angel, who is warning the world against following the beast, taking his mark, says these words. Revelation 14, 6 says, I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having the eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and what else? And the springs of water. Now I want you to turn all the way to the book of Exodus, the second book of your Bible, Exodus chapter 7. Let me just park here for a second with this thought. I know that an unbeliever hearing this may have a difficult time, but let me ask you this question. I have, I have a cup of water up here. Somebody even gave me, somebody from the church gave me one of those cool machines that is supposed to filter out the the bad stuff out of the water. So I try to drink a couple of cups of water a day from that filter. 
It is good water. But I wonder how many times I take a drink of water do I think about the source of water? You know, uh, anymore, sometimes we're with family at holidays and, you know, they know that you're the Christian in the crowd and so you're probably going to pray over like a Thanksgiving meal. You might bring Jesus up at Christmas. I mean, but they want you to get it over quick. I mean, do we have to talk about Jesus? It's, it's Christmas, man. Do we have to say thanks? It's Thanksgiving. Okay, if we're going to do it, let's get it over quick. You know, one of those quick, pithy little prayers. That's when you get the little kid to pray. God, <laughs> I thank you for the forks and the napkins and my puppy. And just let them go on. That's well, glorious. Anyway. <laughs> Do you think we take some things for granted like water and food and shelter? How about sunshine? How about the sun's the exact distance it needs to be away from us and the moon and the stars? How about things like wind? How about the fact that you can think right now and smell and you have taste buds and a circulatory system and a heart that pumps blood at an incredible rate throughout your entire body without you thinking about it and you have eyes to see and ears to hear and every day we wake up and for many, many people on the planet, they will never even give God a thought, nor a thanks. And God sits in heaven. Imagine if you were God and you watched people go to and fro upon the earth on your planet, breathing your air, walking on your land, taking in your sunshine, drinking your water, enjoying the vegetation and the animals and everything that you provided in. You know, it'd be nice if someone just might park for a second and say, oh, thanks. So this is the culmination of much of what goes on, sadly. And, you know, I see it in my own heart. We all struggle. Exodus seven seventeen says, thus the Lord says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, over their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. How many of you saw the movie The Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille? Do you remember when the Pharaoh, Joel Brenner, great Pharaoh, was down there blessing the waters and he started to pour out waters out of a pitcher and what came out of the pitcher turned to blood and he dropped the pitcher and he's like, Ugh. And then later on, he says, oh, a report came in and there was some sort of red mudslide down there. And that, yeah, that's how, the, that's how your pitcher of water became blood. It was a red mudslide. Yeah. Do you know what? This verse seems to indicate that everywhere that the Egyptians had water, 
It was turning into blood, even in pitchers and wood things and stone stuff and on the breakfast table. Wow. Brutal. Back to Revelation 16. Now, the response of the righteous is recorded in verses 5 through 7. And the response of the righteous is interesting. I heard the angel of the waters. First, it starts with an angel, Revelation 16, 5, who said, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou did judge these things. For they, 16, 6, poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Wow. I know some of you are a little bit shocked by that response by the angel. But that's what the angel says. Good. They spilled the blood of your people. Now give them blood to drink. I don't know how that's symbolic, by the way. And so you can see that God is giving back to them what they deserve. They poured out the blood of saints and prophets. Jesus, when he looked over Jerusalem, says, which of the prophets did you not stone that were sent to you? Which of them did you not kill? You shed the blood of righteous, of the righteous uh, blood on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus said, you've done this all along and it hasn't stopped. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now is an altar speaking? I heard the altar say, everybody turn back to Revelation 6 for a second. This was the fifth seal we looked at way back as we were studying the seals in Revelation 6. In verse 9, we looked at the fifth seal and here's what it says. When he broke, 6-9, the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice and said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're told to rest a little while longer in verse 11. Notice they are souls underneath, verse 9, the altar. And then in 16.7, the altar says, maybe these same people say, Yes, O Lord God Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. Is it wrong to want just judgment? Apparently not. Sometimes we think it's wrong to think thoughts that justice can be correct. It's not wrong. In fact, God is just. Now, God is extremely patient. And God gives mercy. And all of us who know Christ tonight have not gotten what we deserve. We deserve justice, but what we got was what? Mercy. <laughs> Praise God. And when Jesus came to the planet, that baby that we will celebrate, born in Bethlehem on that starry night, when he came to the planet, he came to save us. That was his mission. But there are, there are those who will just reject him. And the fourth angel, 16.8, poured out his bowl upon the sun. And it was, given, it was given to it to scorch men with fire. I will say that if you think about sin, sin 
is like a sore. It, it will make us sore. And sin also burns us. Can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? Proverbs 6. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And we're going to see their response in a second. But can you imagine having these terrible boils and then the sun begins to scorch you while you have the boils still? Wow. Brutal. And the response of these people is that they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now wouldn't the boils and the scorching sun be enough for you? Wouldn't it be enough for you to say, okay, God, I'm sorry. By the way, these people know the source of the plagues. They don't have to wonder. They're not trying to figure it out. God is the one judging them, and they know it's God, and yet their response is still what? Blasphemy. They vilify God. Blasphemy is a term that means to vilify God. It means to curse his name, and it goes on every day. There are people who will worship the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, and you name it, but they won't worship the creator of the sun, moon, and stars. The ancients worshiped the sun. They worshiped the sun god, Ra, and they worshiped Apollo, and they worshiped all of this stuff. And today, they still do it. They still do it in witchcraft and environmentalism. They talk about more about Mother Earth than they do Father God, Right? They say, the universe did this for me. <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know how the universe can do anything for you. Does the universe now have personality? <laughs> Apparently. The universe is sending me some good vibes today. No. The universe testifies that there is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they are pouring forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. People in the world are bombarded every single day just by creation alone that there is a God. Every day, creation pours forth its message that God is alive and well. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom his kingdom is one of darkness, so it's appropriate that it became darkened. The sun first is too hot, and then it becomes darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain, because of pain. And they blaspheme God. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they what? They did not repent of their deeds. Jesus talked about people who end up under judgment, and they are gnashing their teeth. These people are gnawing their tongues. Have you ever bit your tongue before? Oh, it's not pleasant. How many of you watched Yasiel Puig lick his bat throughout the playoffs, the baseball playoffs? How many of you saw that? It, it, apparently, yeah, ultimately it did not help, although he did get a lot of good hits. But the commentators were even saying, boy, that just doesn't seem very <laughs> cleanly. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. <laughs> so everybody was looking to the beast. Hey, he'll be the light. Who is like the beast? Who can defeat him? And then all of a sudden his kingdom goes dark. And all of a sudden people, they have all of these issues and it's coming from God. 
and they blaspheme him. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. All kinds of conjecture about the kings of the east. And I cannot tell you emphatically who they are, but the river is dried up and it makes the way possible. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. Out of the mouth of the beast. Who's that? The Antichrist. Out of the mouth of the false prophet. Do you see the unholy trinity here? Satan's always trying to, you know, duplicate the work of God. So you have the dragon, Satan. You have the beast, the Antichrist. You have the false prophet, the unholy trinity. And from them come three unclean spirits. Perhaps from each of them is the idea. And the unclean spirits are like frogs. Now, I don't know how many of you like frogs, but uh, frogs are pretty slimy, pretty uh, croaky. <laughs> and one of the plagues in Egypt was a plague of frogs. You remember that plague of frogs? And at that plague, Moses came to Pharaoh and said, hey, we'll change it up a little bit, Pharaoh. At your word, the frogs will go away. Just say the word. When do you want the frogs to go? Do you remember, you remember the Pharaoh's famous response? He said, tomorrow. Just one more night with the frogs. <laughs> I've become used to little froggy sleeping next to me at night. I got a little blanket I knitted for him. In fact, I'm starting to go to sleep to the rivet, rivet, rivet. <laughs> Getting used to it. Wow. Plague of frogs. What are these? What are these spirits? These are actually spirits of demons. What are they doing? Well, they're performing, they're performing signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Here's the message. These demonic spirits going out from this unholy trinity go into all the world to the leaders and say, hey, it's time to fight God. After all, this is what we wanted all along. We wanted to supplant him. We wanted to usurp his authority. authority. We've been told that we're gods, right? We just don't realize it, but we're gods. We need to sit on our thrones. And in order to get to where we want to be, if we can kick him out of the universe, let's just fight God, because this is what it's all been leading to anyway, right? We'll just, we'll just have a fight with God. Can you imagine that? Did you know your arms are too short to box God? Right? But people are going to try. And from the unholy trinity, the message will go croaking out into the world. Here's the message. Come on, let's fight God. Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. Hey, let's get together over here. Bring your best weapons and your strongest men. We'll fight God today. Ribbit, ribbit. <laughs> what? what are you talking about? You'll fight God. But, but wait, wait. People fight God every day. Wait, do you fight God? Well, no, I, I don't put on my boxing gloves, if that's what you mean, Pastor Michael. Oh, you may not, but you may be fighting him in a lot of areas of your life. How's that going for you? 
I had lunch with a young man today, and he was telling me about a situation. I won't go into the detail, but he was warning a friend about a situation, and he said, look, he goes, look, if you do this, do you want to be that guy? And he said, Pastor, I have figured out a simple way to keep myself from a lot of giving in to a lot of dumb temptations. I just asked myself, do you want to be that guy? <laughs> Isn't that great? Do you want to be that girl who does something dumb and splits up your family and that family and messes up this and that and does this and that? And for what? Do you want to be that guy? More to come on Sunday on that one. And so... We have a parenthetical statement in parentheses, just a little reminder as you read, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Kind of like a warning, also with an encouragement. If you're reading the book of Revelation, hang in there. This is what's coming. Behold, you're going to be blessed. Just stay awake. And they, well, all the people that heard the the croaking of this deceptive message, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon. Literally means the mountains, the mountain of Megiddo, but it's also called the Valley of Estralon and the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And I'll, I'll, I won't take you there tonight for the sake of time, but Joel chapter three would be an interesting chapter for you to read. Let me just give you a few verses. It says, Behold, in those days and at that time, Joel 3, 1, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people. You can read the rest of it later. Read to the end of the chapter and you'll see something interesting. Today, if you go to Israel, you can see the valley of Armageddon or Armageddon. It's this huge valley. Many wars have been fought there. And the last war, the famous battle of Armageddon is where we're leading to now, is going to be fought in this location. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. 17, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. In them the wrath is finished. We read that in 15.1. It is done. It's a completed action with ongoing results. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. You could read Hebrews 12 and Haggai 2. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. It's the strongest earthquake ever. Don't know how that can be symbolic. The strongest earthquake ever. Ever It was so mighty. And the great city, which may refer to Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. If you look at uh, Revelation 20, verse 11 for a second, some similar language says, I saw a great white throne, 2011, and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And a final verse, and I know it's about all you can take. So here it is. Revelation 16, 21 says, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. 
and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, the language, this, this Greek language here is not particularly precise, but it does give you a window between about 90 and 135 pounds. There's your window. Now, if you've ever been in a hailstorm and <clears throat> hail has hit, hit your automobile, <laughs> you, it's not a pleasant experience. I was on a golf course one time in a hailstorm and they had a little shack that we pulled our golf cart into. Um, it's not smart to play golf in any kind of storm because if you have that seven iron and you go up like this, <laughs> it can happen to you. But anyway, can you imagine hail, 100 pounds each, coming down? Is there anything that's ever happened like this? Maybe there's been some record hail in some different locations. You could look up some articles on it. But this is probably the closest I can think of is what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah as fire and brimstone was flowing down as God was judging that area. Let me just say this. At the end of Revelation 16, aren't you glad you're a Christian? Amen. <laughs> Amen. And if you're not a Christian, may I just encourage you to become a Christian? Because Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. And holy and just and righteous and true are his ways. And one day he will judge the world in righteousness. He will give every benefit of the doubt, every warning he can. He's been extremely patient, but one day the day of reckoning will come. And then after the wrath comes what? New heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. We'll have that time of the golden years, but first this will come. Father, we come before you. We're grateful to be your people. Grateful that you are going to make a right and just judgment. And we can especially appreciate this in the light of recent happenings in our own world, sometimes uh, in our own country and sometimes even in our own state. And Lord, uh, we don't celebrate the de demise of anybody, but we know there's going to be a time when we will say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And the good news is righteous and true are your judgments always. You always judge righteously. Will not the judge of all the, of the, all the earth do what is right? You will. And we thank you for that. While we have a window, we don't know when these events will happen, Lord, and it could be way far in the future. But whenever they happen, Lord, and until they happen, it is our desire to be pleasing to you, to live our lives with the joy of the Spirit, the love of Christ, and with the good news of the gospel. And we do pray that you'll help us, Lord, to be busy about your business. If you're not a Christian tonight, I would just encourage you, believe on the person of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Trust in him and him alone for your salvation and know that Jesus took the wrath of God at the cross for you so that you wouldn't have to suffer this stuff. And how grateful we are, Jesus that you took that wrath at the cross. You endured the shame. You endured the pain for us. And we're so grateful for that love. And I pray that that love will cheer us on as we live our lives for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?